And so in one of the episodes, as I was editing it, I was just sitting there cringing at my own mouth noises. And so like Chris is watching me edit and just I'm like, oh, why? So (laughs) (laughs) he's just like, what are you doing? Welcome to Chronically Narnia, the podcast in which we discuss the Chronicles of Narnia chapter by chapter, and today we're breaking format and discussing an entire book. Oh wait, it's format, because we do it at the end of every book. Um, I am a crew member sadly lost at sea in the early part of the book, and uh, may or may not be here for this record. Also known as Kristen, and this is my co-host... I posit that if stars can come to rest in islands, then those who rest in islands can come to rest among the stars. And thus, I am Tumnus the Radiant. (laughs) Also known as Chris. Hi, Chris. Hi. Today we have a special guest with us, and I'm going to allow our guest to introduce himself. I am a fruit who really knows where his towel is. (laughs) Also known as Stephen. Hello, Stephen. Yeah. Welcome to the podcast. Hello. Thank you so much for joining us today. I did get the correct book, did I not? Yes, uh, you did. Yeah, totally. So, we're discussing the Hitchhiker's Guide to the Galaxy today, and um, it's very important to me to know why Ford ended up on Earth to begin with. I believe we are in book five of three, if I'm not book mistaken. Book five of three. Okay. <laughs> All right, then I'm a little lost. So um, why don't we go back to Narnia then? I'm bad at fractions. You're bad at fractions? Mm -hmm. There's a bank or or like chain of banks in Florida called the Fifth Thirds Bank. Yeah. And it it is five slash three. And it has always confused me. It is the fifth thirds bank, and mm-hmm. it is an improper fraction. It has always confused me. That has to be a reference to something, but I have no idea what it would be. Yeah, I don't know. But it's, yeah, there's like a whole chain of them in central Florida. There's a lot of weird banks in Florida. <laughs> it's a lot of weird like things in general in Florida. Well, Wachovia got bought by Wells Fargo a long time ago. Yeah, that was just a thing for a while. But they also had a much prettier aesthetic. They did. All right. So. Is it weird that I immediately think of the Avengers when you said Wakovia? <laughs> to Wakanda? Mm-hmm. That's the Eastern European version of Wakanda. Yeah, it's Wakovia. <laughs> uh-huh. They branched out and yep. opened a bank. There they we go. Did. So we're talking about the book. The book. The, the Voyage book. of the Dawn Treader. I, I feel like I have completely derailed this and we have not even started. Oh, we're good. We're good. Don't okay. worry. We, about we do that. We do bad enough ourselves. All right. So. Stephen, welcome on to the show. Um, for those of you who may not know, Stephen is my brother. Wow. And he has joined us for the podcast, wow. which is an exciting thing for me. When we're brother, from the same, brother from the same mother. Brother from the same mother. <laughs> so thank you so much for joining us today, Stephen. Um, obviously, 
I know a little bit about your past experiences with the Chronicles of Narnia and this book specifically, but I would love it if you could share with our listeners a little bit about where you're coming to with Narnia, what your experience with the books are, and this book specifically, where you're uh, coming to it with your own personal experiences and biases, etc. What do you, where are you coming from, sir? That is interesting. I am broadcasting live from my house. <laughs> um, having read these books as a child, I had not really thought about this particular question. Um, but yes, I've read these books as a child growing up. They were just a thing in our house. Um, same house as you with the same things, I assume. The same books? The very same? Probably the same physical copies, in fact. Probably. Um, I saw... a photo of a book set on wikipedia when i was looking things up yesterday and it was the same book set that i saw and it brought back memories which is interesting um i have a different book set now with different artwork and it's interesting how that particular variance will elicit different thoughts and memories of a book set which i hadn't really considered before but yes we had the books growing up Uh, I read them in my younger years. Uh, I had not read them again for a while. I don't have any particular feelings for them either way, I suppose. I don't think they're amazing. I don't think they're horrible. Um, I think reading them one chapter every week is a horrible way to experience them, (laughs) just as a a side. We agree. (laughs) I think they are meant to be enjoyed in a much simpler manner and uh, scrutinized less. Uh, but yeah, I don't have any particular like favorite book of the series. I would say I hadn't really thought about that to that level before. So enjoyed them as a kid, uh, have enjoyed them when I've read them as an adult. Uh, and I've enjoyed going through them with this podcast though. Like I said, one chapter a week is a different way to, uh, to partake of them that I'm, it is. <laughs> Well, I believe I believe friend of the podcast Steve, not to be confused with Stephen, uh, did suggest once that instead of doing one chapter a week, we just read one of the books thirty times and then go on and talk about it, um, <laughs> as as he did with at least two of them. Well, so, uh, growing up, he would read one a night, so uh-huh. he would read the entire series every week for a, a large portion of his life. Yeah, he would go through the entire series every week. I do remember hearing him say that, and I had that thought. A couple days ago when I when I considered that I might want to reread the book again, you know, just in one one regular reading go um, and thought, well, Steve can read these in a night. Maybe I can do that. And then I looked at like the audiobook was like five hours and I'm like, mm, I don't think I'm going to get through that in one night necessarily. <laughs> and possibly not. So we have I don't know, Kristen, you have you have some things to start us off with in terms of talking about like well i had one more question oh go ahead one more question yeah so steven you have a son who's coming up on the age of the characters in the books are you going to have him read narnia are you going to read narnia with him see this is an interesting question i actually had this thought yesterday i was sitting there and i was reading part of this book to refresh and i was trying to get him off of electronic devices as a parent does in these times (laughs) And I had the thought, like, 
he could also be reading and he has a million books to choose from in this house and i was reading this book of narnia and i thought i might be able to entice him off of an electronic device if i gave him a different book that might you know interest him so i thought i'll hand him the lion the witch in the wardrobe and just see if he's in that you know place that he would like that book but then i could not that was like the one book in the in the box set that i could not put my hands on <laughs> at that particular moment so that exercise then failed but it's I am. One too. Yeah. Well, it's out of the box set because someone else in the family was going to be reading it, and so I just need to find where that family member put it. Um, mm. It is around here somewhere. I just couldn't put my hands on it yesterday morning. So yes, the thought has occurred to me that uh, my eldest boy might get to the point where he is capable of reading these. I think he's capable of uh, reading them at this point. I don't know that he is you know, necessarily understanding all of the themes. Um, and yes, I will offer them to him as an option for reading. Nice. There we go. And in, in eight to 10 years, we'll have him on a special bonus episode where we revisit <laughs> the series. <laughs> Absolutely. Jot that down the calendar. It is funny to think I was looking, like I said, at the Wikipedia and from what it said, this book was published in 1952, which is 69 years ago if my math mm-hmm. is correct, which is quite a while. Yep. So it's, in it's eight to 10 years, the viewpoints on it might not necessarily change a whole lot because it has already gone 69 years as such. Yeah. It has. It's one of those that has definitely entered into like canon American culture, yeah. I feel. Not quite as old as The Hobbit, but. Not quite as old as The Hobbit. Mm-hmm. All right, let's go ahead and dive into the book. You didn't make flashcards for this one. Oh, I have. Oh, no, I have a checklist. Okay. I, I Instead of wasting nine flashcards, I wrote my my flashcard points all on one piece of paper. Yeah, to peel back the curtain for the listeners who don't know, uh, most of the time when we do these wrap-up episodes, Kristen makes a series of flashcards about themes and motifs in the book and just randomly shuffles through them to pick a topic. Well, so it doesn't feel as forced. I do that. No, no, not to to avoid feeling forced. I do that when the discussion comes to a halt. Okay. Like, I try to start discussion, and then if the discussion dries up a little bit, I'll just be like, and let's talk about this as a coming-of-age story, yeah. you know, or whatever we my should, flashcard says. We should do that in social engagements. Yeah. It's like we're hanging out with people in the conversation, and we'll just pull out a stack of flashcards. Okay, hey guys, so what do you think about... <laughs> What do you, you could, think about the color of the walls in this room? <laughs> you could literally pick any word from the from the dictionary and call it a crypto coin and start talking about it. Because there yes. are that many of them. Yes. All right. So we invested in Dragon Coin. Have you heard about this coin? I've heard. I've heard that the well runs deep for Dragon Coin. This is our Narnia-based crypto. Yep. Is that what we're calling it? Yeah. Not not lion coin. It's not lion coin because like in Narnia, that's probably already out. Yeah, there. I, I yeah. thought the currency was trees and lions. Sickles, sickles, and lions and trees. Lions, lions and, trees. and trees. Yeah. All right. Sickles yeah. are calamine. Yeah. Currency. Yeah. Don't confuse the two. Yeah. That's right. hard to search for because the word trees shows up in the PDF fifteen times. Ah. Mm-hmm. Not nearly as many as uh, most of the other books in the series, though. <laughs> that's true. <sighs> Uh, trees 
especially Prince Caspian. Yeah, there's such a lack of trees in this book yeah, really from are. your theories that Lewis has a very odd fascination with trees. He has definitely left them out of this book significantly. Well, Lewis was a man that was fascinated by many things, like trees, trees horses, like birds, trains, ships. Trains. Yes. Like the coast, though, according to according to our British friends, like having a fondness for the coast is just like an intrinsically British thing. Going to the it's sea. Like going to the yes. sea, that's just like a that's ingrained in their their being. All so. right. So let's actually uh, discuss the book. Mm-hmm. Um, Stephen, as our guest, I, I think our listeners would enjoy hearing from you since they hear from us quite a bit. Um, it's kind of like a thing on a podcast. Mm-hmm. But what are some things that you wanted to talk about on the book? Um, I know you made some notes and... Obviously, you have some experience with the books recently and previously. So what are some things that stood out from you, either from the podcast or the book, that you wanted to discuss some more? Also, really quick, if you want to just call us out and say that we're completely wrong about anything, feel free to. Like, we <laughs> welcome criticism. So, Obviously, the point of the podcast is to look at the book very deeply and with a critical eye. And I understand that, though, (laughs) from my point of view, um, I don't know that this was necessarily written to stand up to such scrutiny. Obviously, it wasn't Uh, (laughs) because like one of my first notes is how did they get a painting of a Narnian ship in the first place? And that seems to be in a different universe, a topic that would have a whole book devoted to it with backstory. Oh, yeah. And in this book, it's just a thing. And the fact that they were in that house to begin with was because the other relative had suddenly gone poor inexplicably, which again, in my mind, deserves a little bit more of a backstory. Like, did he invest in the wrong cryptocurrency or what was it? (laughs) But in this, in this, you know, series, in this book specifically, it's just a thing that is said in a single sentence and it's just, it is what it is and you move on. And I think that comes down to the nature of it just being written for children and not necessarily requiring more explanation than that. Mm-hmm. Um, so uh, that makes it hard to then, you know, spend a bunch of time being critical of the story when at the same time in the back of my mind, I'm thinking, yeah, but this was just a bunch of books written for some kids and it doesn't necessarily need to have backstory for every single thing. But on the flip side, I have a lot of questions. It's just a kid's book. It's mm-hmm. just a kid's book. I don't know. Okay. I feel like this book is the first one that has had the level of theme engagement throughout it that that like I feel like the Voyage of the Dawn Treader here has held up much better on a theme point discussion like chapter by chapter than any of the previous books have mm-hmm. for me at least yeah. because it is more episodic in its storytelling it definitely holds up a little bit better to this kind of discussion than some of the other books do. Yeah. We're still letting Stephen talk, though. So. Okay. <laughs> <laughs> okay, question for you. Yes. If you were to describe what Reepicheep looks like. <laughs> oh, my goodness. What What would you say is the, as the primary, like, description of Reepicheep? I mean, he's a mouse. Yes. The primary description is that he's mouse-like. Okay. Size, For me. Size. Okay. Okay. 
So here's the thing. <laughs> the first time Reepicheep is introduced in one of the other books in Prince Caspian, we have, and Reepicheep is one of my flashcards, and <laughs> Reepicheep is described as being a is mouse. Is that a larger flashcard than the rest of them? Yes, it is. <laughs> it's the, it's the uh, shape-changing uh, flashcard. Reepicheep is not described like in my memory as being like significantly larger than a standard mouse. Okay. Like it, in my memory of Prince Caspian. However, in this book, we have Reepicheep being described as the size of a terrier. Yes. And so in this book, it, like, I feel like Reepicheep changed sizes from Prince Caspian to Voyage of the Dawn Treader. And then in your in your visual recollection, what color would you say Reepicheep is? <laughs> oh, golly gee. Like, first thing that comes to your mind. What do you picture him as? I'm picturing him as he's presented in the movies. So, like, the kind of, like... What, grayish brown? He's mouse colored. He's mouse colored. <laughs> He's not a white mouse. But, is he yeah. a white mouse? See, that's that's what's interesting to me is, um, in my mind, it's a white mouse. Okay. And in some of the drawings in the book, it indicates a white color. But the actual description in this book was that the mouse's fur was very dark, almost black. Ah, okay. Which stood out to me when I was reading through it yesterday. Like, that's not what I pictured. And I don't know if part of that is, like you said, the the movie depictions or the drawing depictions. I don't know. But that stood out to me that it was interesting that he is described as almost black. Hmm. Interesting. Because I don't know if I ever pictured him as white. Maybe I did. But I wouldn't remember, like, how I pictured him at the moment. Um, but that would probably have been based off of the drawings as opposed to any actual text description. Which a lot of times those, for for memory of a story or a character, like, the drawings can impact a lot more what I remember as opposed to the actual text for me. So... That's how my brain works, where I'm like, oh, if I see a picture of something in a book, if, even if it's not, like, holding up to what the, the description actually was in the text, I'm going to remember the picture and not the text description. So, I don't know. Yeah, Reepa Cheep. I For me, he's, he's not a color-changing mouse, as he is for you, but he's a size-changing <laughs> mouse. Reepicheep has always been a character that his size didn't didn't match up for me the mm-hmm. way that I expected him to to be because when it goes he's the size of a terrier I'm like I spent a whole book thinking that he was the size of a baby possum you know like what what are you talking about like yes mm-hmm. and picturing swinging a terrier around by the tail no, seems like more effort <laughs> You know that what I mean? Like me it, sad. it seems yes. like a way more effort than swinging a baby possum around by the tail. <laughs> Not that I know from experience or anything. But... <laughs> yes. Yeah, so Reepicheep, mysterious uh, size and color changing mouse that he is. Are there any other characters, Stephen, that stand out to you as on this read through 
different in physical or, or character description from what you remember? I don't think anything stands out as being f- different physical description. I don't remember the ship having purple sails. When I read that, I was like, it was what? Okay, yeah. <laughs> uh-huh. Yeah, I could see that. It seems a little excessive to have purple sails. Yeah. Because generally speaking, purple is supposed to be like a harder color to come by and therefore reserved for royalty. So using up all of your purple for a ginormous sheet seems a little excessive. It does. I mean, it's the first real expedition that the the brand new Narnian Navy is setting out there into the world. It's a flagship. It's, you know, the ship the king is on. So if there ever was a ship to have purple sails... Also, it seems a little strange that the pirate ship would have even bothered with them because it says early on in the book that there was a pirate ship that like, came towards them and they had to fight them off. Mm-hmm. I would think a pirate ship looking out, seeing a ship with a gigantic purple sail, that would somehow indicate that this is a different, not your average ship and therefore not necessarily one to try to... Rob, I'm not sure. Yes, but it's obviously a very rich ship. Because they can afford to have these purple sails. That's a valid point. They do kind of paint a target on themselves. Also a very small ship. Yes. Very small crew. So pirates might have been thinking they'd get lucky. They might have been able to afford a larger ship if they had not spent the money on the purple sail. Possibly. Mm Mm-hmm. It's very true. But then we would have had to cull more trees of the Narnian walking trees. Yeah. And that moral dilemma is just difficult. It really is. So, themes? So, themes. Um, We obviously have on this story, uh, the very easy one to point out is that this has a coming-of-age story uh, element, as most of these books do. Not as strongly as Prince Caspian, I would say. Yeah, not as strongly as Prince Caspian. But we also have some dramatic character development in Eustace. You know, he goes from being a character to not existing anymore. Mm-hmm. And um, also in Reepicheep in the last half of the book, where Reepicheep goes from being this fighter character to throwing away his sword in the last chapter and there's a dramatic shift there in that last chapter for Reepicheep mm-hmm. so we have some of these kind of coming of age narrative and and themes here less so than the last book yes I will agree with you there Chris but um this is something you really wanted to talk about so I'm gonna let you go ahead and and continue on that well I I got into a lot of this in my wrap-up of prince caspian and in retrospect i feel like that one is much more of a coming of age obviously for caspian and it's like it is his book but also for peter and susan and you know this is their last trip to narnia and this is them you know you know they they seem very adult in the books and that's them kind of like getting over that hump and then aslan is like oh peace you're not coming back at the end and it's just like you're too grown up and the same thing happens here with Edmund and Lucy, where in the end Aslan's like, oh, you're too old now, you can't come back. And so it, it is kind of their story, where I don't see Edmund and Lucy really coming into their own as quote-unquote grown-ups in this book, so much as Peter and Susan did in the previous one. Mm. 
However, I do feel like they they got some development, and apparently Aslan feels like whatever they needed to learn here in Narnia is they have learned, and they can't get any more out of it. And with that said, though, I I don't I see what Lucy could have learned here mm-hmm. throughout her various different trips to Narnia, and especially this one with her whole thing that she goes through with the book, mm-hmm. the magician's book, um, in Karayakin's house. Yeah. Like, there is definitely potential to argue that there's a coming-of-age moment there for Lucy. She faces temptation. But what does Edmund face in this book that has finished his Narnia journey? Man, I don't know. He doesn't seem to have any kind of real movements in that regard, character development. In my mind, just thinking back to it, you're right. Yeah, like, there... What, what what did Edmund do in this story other than acknowledge to Eustace, like, yeah, you were a jerk, but I was a traitor. Like, that's, that's the most introspective that Edmund gets in this book. Mm-hmm. And then he and, he and Caspian have their little tiff on Deathwater about who's going to get all the gold. Mm-hmm. And that's it. That's really all there is for Edmund as a character in this book. Well, Edmund's had a much longer, like, redemption arc that's lasted for several books now. And he's had a, you know, kind of a more subtle overarching story. However, in terms of what they're supposed to learn, I would almost want to go back to kind of what the royal titles were, because this is a thing we bring up a lot. And, Kristen, you know these off the top of your head. Edmund is the just. Edmund is the just. And Lucy is the valiant. The valiant. So are these things that the children are kind of supposed to come into and represent these ideals back in Earth and normal world? And so did, you know, did Edmund learn something about justice here? Did Lucy learn something about being valiant or being perseverant or being, you know, something like that? Would you say that that's... You know, they're, they're embodying their titles. I would say that Lucy definitely gets an opportunity to grow into the valiance of going up to the to the very scary upstairs with the invisible uh, magician. Mm-hmm. I think that there's definitely something there for, for Lucy. And on Edmund's side, I would say that the justice side is a, a deeper revelation of of what he himself has experienced, where he's experienced grace from Aslan, but he gets to secondhand experience that by ha- being the first one to meet Eustace when he has become a boy again mm-hmm. after being dragoned. Mm-hmm. And he is the first one to hear the story of Eustace, and he's able to kind of engage with that narrative in a way that that most of the other characters probably can't because Edmund has a history with Aslan with this kind of redemptive story Mm -hmm. and so I think that there's probably some revelation of grace that's happening or justice that's happening for Edmund in that moment but I'm not 100% sure Mm -hmm. so the the question I always like to ask uh, and ask kind of throughout the book because I think it was kind of unclear here, is who was the protagonist of Voyage of the Dawn Treader? Who's the main character? Thoughts, Stephen? <laughs> I don't know that there was a main character. 
Likewise, on the flip side, um, I was struck by one of the lines on the Wikipedia article that said this is the only book in the series that does not have um, an enemy, like a you know a bad guy or a primary evil person. Mm-hmm. On yes. the flip side, so in a way, there's it doesn't seem to be. Yeah, there's multiple storylines going on there. Not necessarily any one person. So there is a little bit more leaning into this idea of, like, within story conflict, you have man versus man, man versus, you know, God or or greater power, man versus himself. And in this story, we have a lot of many narratives of the people conflicting with themselves. Mm-hmm. Which kind of leans into this idea that Chris started in throughout all of the episodes and the discussions of the book that this is representing like the seven mortal sins or the seven deadly sins. Mm-hmm. And this kind of idea that each of the characters is engaging in an internal work mm-hmm. where we have conflict happening throughout where it's like, okay, so we get to this island and then it's Eustace dealing with himself. Mm -hmm. We get to this island and now it's Lucy dealing with herself. Mm -hmm. So there's a series of vignettes about different characters. So, but I would say that the only, like, there's really only three characters who get that kind of in, well, maybe I got to include Reepicheep. So I was going to say Lucy... Edmund, sorry, Lucy, Eustace, and Caspian, but I also have to throw Reepicheep in there. I would say that the four of them definitely have moments where they get to ha- be the main character and go triumph in some way. Uh-huh. Where we have on the on the Lone Islands, Caspian coming in, getting captured, getting purchased by the Lord that he's looking for, and then coming and freeing all the slaves and releasing the lone islands from this sloth um and then we have lucy and her moment with aslan and karaikin's book we have eustace being dragoned and undragoned and dealing with himself and his change after that Mm -hmm. but uh and then reap cheap and his prophecy in the end and throwing his sword away so we have these distinct moments of character but yeah, I don't think that there's a main character throughout the entire thing. Yeah. It's definitely a lot more of a series of, of stories about people doing things. Yeah, and I don't want to get deep, deep into the Seven Deadly Sins thing. There's some more material on that I want to bring up, but we're going to like probably record that later and tack it on as an addendum. Uh, however, having had time to sit on the book for a minute, I have been mulling over this other idea that maybe less so than the seven deadly sins because i was approaching this from kind of a paradise lost standpoint of like this is the classic tale of like the exploration of some other realm and like paradise lost is like you know a perfect example of that and so i was going more into like the the, you know the dante's inferno side where oh these are the layers of hell and these are the sins they represent and etc etc but if we go to the flip side to, you know, the other one. The name of the other one I can't remember in Paradise Lost. Paradiso? Where they're going, where they're going through heaven. Paradiso. Yes, that one. <laughs> and it's the one I always forget. Yeah. 
The paradise one? Yeah. And in... <laughs> paradise. And in this book, they're they are very literally going toward heaven. Like, they're moving toward the edge of the world, toward Aslan's country, like, the world beyond. They're moving toward it in a very, like, literal sense. And so maybe that's more important to the the setting and the general theme than something like that deadly sins are is that they're going through trials or they're going from narnia which is you know this analog to earth and they're going from the mortal realm toward the divine and toward heaven and the further they go out the more of these magical things they encounter and they you know go through these these realms or these layers of uh, the beyond or heaven or whatever you want to call it and they're getting sanctified and each time they're overcoming things they're getting cleansed they're getting holier and then toward the end then they are ready to encounter heaven or what is you know what's past this mortal life and so it's more about that possibly than just the sense themselves okay I was also gonna dive into looking at it as a uh, as a representation of like the journey of the Israelites out of Egypt, starting with slavery in the Lone Island and going through the various different islands past the Star Island, etc. But I couldn't make that work. Mm-hmm. So I like I like your idea of of being like a a Dante's Paradiso thing mm-hmm. better. I think it's possible. That C.S. Lewis just wrote a bunch of books for kids. <laughs> and he already did one in a wintertime forest, and he did one in a desert, and so now he's doing one in a boat. And in a boat, there's islands, because then it would just be too boring if it was just a boat. And you wouldn't get birds if you didn't have land masses occasionally. Yeah, you couldn't have birds. birds. <laughs> he loves so, the birds I think you might be giving him a little too much credit to think that the different islands might potentially represent different things <laughs> <laughs> well I, but I, this is also I mean go ahead sorry oh it's, it's also Lewis and and Lewis loves him some allegory this is true and and this is you know the the, the famous conflict between Lewis and Tolkien and talking about literature is because Tolkien hated allegory famously hated the entire series of Narnia because it was too allegorical and just told Lewis, you know, you're, you're trying to include too much stuff. He also disliked the idea that he was mixing his mythologies. Yeah. You'd never see a lamb throwing a barbecue in, you know, the <laughs> Hobbit. That's just, not yeah. you wouldn't. And like everything was, you know, far too symbolic and allegorical. So like there, there's an argument to be made that Lewis was trying to do this for sure, but how deep he was going into it. I don't know. I'm also the one who who threw out the theory that like all of this was just Lewis laying on a couch smoking a pipe somewhere and dictating the books to somebody else who was writing them down. So it's there there are definitely times where the books feel like more of a stream of consciousness from him than anything else. That being said, here's a question that I wanted to bring up. We have in this book the most clear picture yet of who the narrator is. And we have a couple moments, especially in, it was one of the last couple chapters, where there's there's this scene where the narrator is basically interviewing Lucy yes. about her time later. And so, you oh, know. Why was it so sad? Yes. Why was it so sad? Like, the, the narrator even has a quote in the book. Uh-huh. I just, 
I just picture a cut scene, like you go through this dramatic part of the movie, and then all of a sudden it cuts to C.S. Lewis sitting on a chair and Lucy laying on a couch, <laughs> being interviewed by a, a psych, and he says, well, wait, why was it so sad? And she's laying on the couch going, I don't know. <laughs> and then it cuts, the video you know, cuts back to the action scene. Yeah. It's like, don't worry, she'll survive this. She'll be scarred forever, <laughs> but she'll survive this. Yeah. Uh, so do we do we have any further thoughts on the mysterious narrator of the books? Like, do you have a theory on, on who this might be or what the relationship to Lucy could be? Or is just just like, does it matter? For me personally, I haven't read any of his other books other than the Chronicles of Narnia. I know he mm-hmm. has other books that he is known for. Uh, I know a couple of them I tried to start reading when I was younger and gave up on. Mm-hmm. Um, so I don't know if this is a, a thing for him, you know, if he has a, a standard way of going about this or if this is unique to this series. Yeah. So it's hard to know given his background with other writing, if this is, you know, a normal narration mode for him or if this is odd, I don't, I don't understand it. Uh, and in what my I- recollection of the space trilogy, he does that as well where he's discussing this as if the characters told him about the story later mm-hmm. but i might be inaccurate on that well he he is you know at his heart very much a storyteller and that's uh kind of who lewis is is historically looked on as and there's this disconnect when you talk to different audiences like an american audience versus an english audience about who c.s lewis was and a lot of American Christians and, you know, well-read people will be like, oh, yes, he was, he was a theologian and he was, you know, uh, you know this, you know, very brilliant uh, religious mind and he wrote all these really deep, insightful books and et cetera, et cetera. And if you ask people in England, they'll say, oh, yeah, he was the old man that told stories on the radio. During the war. During the war. Because that was, you know, his thing that he got famous for is that during wartime he would go on the radio and tell you know, cute little stories to get people's minds off of, like, the horror around them. And so he was very much this, like, figure of the grandfather just sitting down by the fire telling people a story. And so that's, even though that's, I don't feel like that's expressed a lot in his nonfiction books, like, that's very much who Lewis was. Yeah. Mm -hmm. Yeah, and in that method of storytelling, it would make a little bit more sense to have the narrator questioning a character or relaying a story like that. Um, Mm -hmm. That's interesting. Yeah. Cool. Um, So Kristen, what's, what's next in the list here? Oh, well on my list, uh, you wanted to talk about adventure. I wanted to talk about the various non Island challenges Mm-hmm. that the characters encountered, including pirate ships, sea monsters, uh, the use of the albatross, the sea people. So these are the kind of things that I wanted to make sure that we got a chance to talk about. You wanted to talk about adventure. I think that these can be hand-in-hand hand discussed. Uh, yeah, we can move on from adventure because I think if you want to go into your point first, I had my time and space discussion that I think works really well with that. Okay. So, so go into your time and space. 
Well, okay. tell us about time and space. I mean, I have my towel ready. Stevens established <laughs> that he has his. So, all right. So this is something I was also mulling over in the interim time between reading the book and recording this episode. Is we also very recently read through The Hobbit again, as uh, and that was my first time reading it as an adult because like unlike most of the books in this series had read the hobbit before uh like saw the really creepy old 70s cartoon about it even yeah that was i always thought was really weird and uh you know watched the first hobbit movie i didn't watch the second two yeah the modern ones because i just heard they were not worth the time eventually we'll get around to doing that but did read the hobbit recently again and I feel like as an adult, like, it's not, definitely not as good as I remember it being. Like, it, it is very, it is very simplistic in parts, like, coming, you know, from the perspective of a person who's read Lord of the Rings, like, it's it gets very simplistic. But it, it does hold up pretty well. And what I wanted to get into, and I, I, I know I'm beating a dead horse with comparing Tolkien and Lewis all the time, just because, you know, I haven't read anything by any of the other members of that writing group. So these are the two. Yeah, these are the two I've got. (laughs) It's funny. It's funny to picture the two of them sitting in a coffee shop every week. And I think that's one of the reasons why you tend to compare the two, because there is, you know, the story of them being in the same club and meeting weekly. And I can just imagine like C.S. Lewis walking in with a little five-page chapter being like, look what I did here, and Tolkien whipping out, like, you know, 12 volumes about the backstory <laughs> of a ring and be like, oh, yeah, I wrote some too, you know. <laughs> I like that. Yeah. Like, here's this language I've been working on for the past three years. Um, yes, I invented two languages, and you wrote about an albatross. All right. Yeah, <laughs> uh, yeah I, I, I don't... From the research I've done, I don't think a lot of the other members of the group actually went into novels. Like, uh, a lot of them were essayists and poets, and, like, there's not really a lot of other books that came out of that particular circle. However, in comparing them, I had this kind of mental comparison going between my reading of The Hobbit and reading this book in particular, because I feel like this book so far in the series is the closest analog of The Hobbit, because although The Hobbit isn't an island-hopping story... It's an adventure story. Yeah, but it is an island hopping story. <laughs> yeah. And I feel like of the two, they both do different things well. But something that Tolkien was always very, very, very good at was making the world feel big. And making, like, I, I think reading The Hobbit, like, the world of Middle-earth feels so much more fully realized than the world that we explore, you know, we still don't actually know what the planet is called because we're not in Narnia in this book. We're just on the Discworld that Narnia sits on. Yes, and that is definitely something on my notes that I wanted to talk about if we got to that point, is what is the name of this place and what size is it? Because, <laughs> yeah, to your point, Middle-earth does seem large. Like, they they go long distances and it's a big deal and there's a lot there. But then you look at a map of Narnia and it's like, okay... Is this little tiny country in the middle of this larger thing, and there's an ocean on one side, but is there an ocean on the other side? We don't know. And sometimes the scale feels very strange. 
Yeah, it does. Um, yeah, I don't think we ever, like, obviously I haven't read the last two books, but I don't think we ever actually established what the disc world that it's on is called, or if it has a name. You can correct me if I'm wrong, Kristen. Uh, I don't know. Okay. As far as size goes, I'm not sure. Like, I'm sure we could go back through it and, like, do all kinds of crazy math and say, oh, hey, well, a sailing ship of this size would go about this speed, and it says they spent two weeks going between these islands and three days going between these and I feel like we could probably go backwards and have a very rough estimate of just how far they traveled. Um, someone's I, probably already done that. Somebody's probably already and done a that. A bit of Googling can, would probably solve that question. And we can look that up in five minutes. So, But you know, with that, how fast does that ship move, though? Because like, in the section where, they're, where Lucy's looking down at the under-ocean world, yes. they seem to travel a very long distance in what seems like 20 minutes. Because if you yeah. think about it, she's looking over the railing, she sees mountains, and now we see a town, and now we see fields, and now we see a castle. Like, if those castles, if those people are the same size as people on land, and we just covered the entire countryside and the castle in a couple of minutes of looking overboard... We're on an airplane. Yes, we are going very, very fast. Yeah. Well, at that point, they're they they are caught in the current that's like carrying them to the edge of the world. So. But at the same time, they can swim up and shake a spear at you. Yes. That so, is curious. Let there me. Are, here. There are speed discrepancies. Seems that way. Let Chris me, is getting his phone now. Let me let me do a quick little Google search just to see if anybody's worked out how large the uh, Narnian disc is supposed to be. Um. And well, he does that. <laughs> Go ahead. <laughs> well, I was also going to say, like, in Magician's Nephew, they are there for the creation of the world. And it seems to, to my memory like it is the creation of Narnia as a planet. But then on the flip side, in that same book, they travel outside of the Narnia area and are made aware that there are other parts to this planet that are not Narnia which seems very sudden to all of a sudden create a world and have it be populated with other countries already. Yes, because in The Magician's Nephew, they go to the garden to get the apple and all of that. So they go up the mountain and everything. Right, and I seem to remember them like pointing out over that ridge is Arkenland or something. and like It, it seems to reference that there are other parts, other places, other countries already in this world that was just created an hour ago um i don't know if it uses any names like arkenland but i think that it definitely indicates that there are other areas just always but i don't think it uses any names it just always was a question in my mind especially reading through these again recently is you know what what exactly was it that aslan created was it just the country of narnia was it the whole Discworld was it you know and and if so if he did create the whole Discworld why isn't it all called Narnia or is it all called Narnia in which case what is the country of Narnia separate from the flat world of Narnia but like we have this kind of uh almost like a Narnia as Israel analog where you could say like okay so he created the whole world but he chose this one people or whatever um, 
because within the magician's nephew we have aslan creating singing the stars into existence so i feel like he's creating the entire world of narnia because he's even creating the stars and the sun with his song right so i feel like it's it's hard to say that he's not creating the entire world at that point but then like what is narnia itself well narnia is his people if you will well also if we go back to the magician's nephew it does say that um the kids are able to you know from atop fledge they can see distant lands that will be eventually inhabited like places that will become Arkenland and Kalerman, et cetera, et cetera. And so it implies that, like, there are these surrounding lands above Narnia, but there's nothing in them yet. So Aslan hasn't gone to them yet to to create, or... Possibly. But will, then we also will es- what he created in Narnia expand outward? But then we also establish the idea of, like, the Telmarines. The Telmarines who just wander into in Narnia from Earth. And, from Earth. Yeah. and people this land just from you know they're just pirates uh Arr. based on my quick five minutes of googling it does seem like what we, we might have to do this math eventually because it like nobody else has i can find <laughs> no i can find no size estimates for the disc that narnia is on you can't find like reddit no i have, I have our a, narnia no i have a size for narnia itself but not the entire world okay so there's no Narnian round earthers out there? <laughs> Apparently not. Well, and this is interesting to me, too, because, like, when I look at the maps in the book, and they're talking about, you know, we're selling, we're sailing east, and we're seeing what's out there. A, I think people would already have a better idea of what's out there, um, especially if we've established that there are other countries that make bigger, better ships. I would think that they would already know about some of these other islands. Um, but then B, that map, there's only the ocean on the one side. Does that indicate then that there's like a big, huge desert on the other side of the map? And can you just walk that direction to also get to Aslan's country or what is over on that side? Well, we, we've established that Aslan's country is basically in the sun or behind the sun or behind the sun. Mm Mm-hmm. But is it behind the sun or is it behind the dawn? Because if it's behind the dawn, then it's only east. And we could assume that going west is going away from Aslan's country to a darker, scarier place. The witch's country. To the witch's country, if you will. (laughs) Yeah, they always reference east. Whenever they talk about Aslan's country, they always reference east. Yeah. So that would indicate it is only that one direction. The mountains and the giants to the north, mm-hmm. and we have the desert of Kalerman to the south. Mm-hmm. We have the ocean and Aslan's country to the east, and then we just have the edge of the map on the on the west. Well, on the west, isn't that where Telmarine is? That's where the Telmarines came from. Yes, but we we never see a map of Telmar, and we never see we we don't have any idea what's there. Yeah. Except that there's some kind of famine and pestilence that led the Telmarines to come to Narnia. Apparently. Well, so... It's an empty land with no food, apparently. Yeah, it sounds like a terrible place. So, bringing it back around to the idea of time and space. That was kind of my main point, is I feel like in The Hobbit, Tolkien does a better job of 
conveying not only the passage of time, but like the distance between places in a way that is hard to do. Just because of the nature of the story, it's really hard to do in this book, so I'm not necessarily faulting Lewis at that. Just because when you're doing a journey over land, it's much easier to be like, oh, here are landmarks and here's adventures we had and things we passed and we walked this long and it's a, you know, you can get a much better idea of just how big that feels versus, oh, we sailed over featureless ocean for five days. And like, if you're on a boat going over the middle of the ocean, like it's <clears throat> like having a sense of distance is really difficult because there aren't any landmarks. There aren't any real things that you're just like, oh, we've been traveling this long and there's no sense of scale. Which is why so, you add in things like yeah. pirates and sea monsters. Which is why I want to give to, scale to that. Which I, I thought that's why that would tie in really well. Your point about the the things that come between, mm-hmm. because it's like that's I think that's why those are in there, because it's not just like oh we're gonna teleport to this island and this island and this island and this island. That being said, I also think in the Hobbit or not necessarily the Hobbit. But Middle-earth feels like a world that already exists. And it has its own thing going on. And when you're going on an adventure through Middle-earth, you're going out there and just discovering things that have happened. And, like, you can, like, discover people, like, uh, the the town on the water. What's that called? Lake Town. Lake Town. Yeah. (laughs) You can discover places like that that have, like, their own culture and their own thing going on and their own history and, like, that's existed... Whereas my my issue with this as an island hopping story was it felt like, it almost felt like theater. Yeah. Where it almost felt like these are things that were created to be seen by the crew of the Dawn Treader. At this point, At this too. point. Like, they, they came here to this island, and this is meant to be there for them. And right like, when they could free all the slaves yeah. and, well, and help everybody them, in the line. One of them does disappear immediately after they leave to that point. The Dark Island is then yeah. gone as soon as they leave. Yeah. yeah and like that that they that's not even a thing they get to explore and i guess the the only real things that feel like they have some sort of history behind them are the two islands with the stars of uh asmandu and kariakin where it feels like there was stuff going on there because like kariakin's had charge over like the duffers for however long and this is like there's a bit of history there which is probably why i think that's probably the most interesting couple of chapters even though i really don't like the duffers <laughs> um, because there's a story and it feels like they stumbled into a story rather than just like coming into something that had no significance before they got there. Because even going up to like the Dragon Island, like what was the Dragon Island before the Lord came there and with his cursed treasure and turned to the dragon? It was just a random island with nothing on it. And like we, that's all that happened there was the dragon. Then we go to the Burnt Island. What happened there? Nobody Probably, well, and that was probably an effort to give it more significance to be like, oh, this is a burnt island because some dragon burned this place. Yeah. And that goes to my question, too. Like, other people should have known that these islands existed (laughs) because given that there was all that treasure on that island, that treasure had to come from somewhere. And given that there were signs of recent people living on the burnt island, those people came from somewhere. I don't know. It seems like at the Lone Islands, they should have been able to find more information than they did. Possibly. I, I also, I was a little disappointed that the the foreshadowing we get in the Lone Islands didn't really go anywhere because 
right before we leave the Lone Islands, they talk to like the old salty mariners who are just like, oh, we've got stories about what happens at, toward the edge of the world. And they mention like three or four different things that they they could encounter out there, like, you know, the sea being on fire and stuff like that, which none of which ever happens, which I was assuming like, even if it wasn't completely accurate, that would still be alluding to something they would encounter. But to the best of my knowledge, they don't. It's... I Because I, I, I disagree with you. I feel like they definitely got some insight. Mm-hmm. While all this was being done, Caspian missed no chance of questioning all the oldest sea captains whom he could find in Narrow Haven to learn if they had any knowledge or even any rumors of land, for, land further to the east. He poured out many a flagon of the castle ale to weather-beaten men with short gray beards and clear blue eyes, and many a tall yarn he heard in return. But those who seemed the most truthful could tell of no lands beyond the Lone Island, and many thought that if you sailed too far east, you would come into the surges of the sea without lands that swirled perpetually round the rim of the world. And that, I reckon, is where your majesty's friends went to the bottom. The rest had only wild stories of islands inhabited by headless men, floating islands, water spouts, and a fire that burned along the water. Only one, to reap a cheap's delight, said, and beyond that, Aslan's country. But that's beyond the edge of the world, and you can't get there. But when they questioned him, he could only say that he'd heard it from his father. Mm -hmm. So... Islands inhabited by headless men could be a description of the duffers in a in an intelligent sense. Mm-hmm. Floating islands could be your dark island that disappears because they never actually got to it. Water spouts could be the sea monsters or the storm that nearly destroyed them. And a fire that burned along the water could be more descriptions of nightmares from the dark island... It could be the dragon. It could be so what happened all of those to the burnt island. Yeah, it could be what happened to the burnt island. Could be that many of those things actually are represented just differently. Yeah. Okay. I can see that. Okay. Fair point. I was right. Sorry. <laughs> what? Well, <laughs> do you envision them sailing directly east? Like if they had a compass, they were just going straight east the entire time? For the most part, I do. Like, I think that they pointed at the sun and sailed as much towards the dawn as they could. Because mm-hmm. I just pulled up one of the maps um, online, you know, of Narnia and, and this voyage. And the islands are just kind of spread out. They're just peppered all over the map. Mm-hmm. And I can't imagine them sailing northeast and hitting one island and then sailing southeast to hitting the second island and then straight north to hit the third island like i i am with you i envision them them heading towards the sun as it comes up over the horizon and that's the direction they just always go and so all of these islands are just strung out like in a straight line well i mean with sailing if they point the nose of the ship at the sun and can't catch the wind true they have to follow the wind they have the oars to row, but they're not going to row against current if the current is taking them north. So I get that the northeast and the southeast direction changes. I don't get like the ones that are like right above each other where it's like dead north to go there unless it's one of the islands that they saw from somewhere else. 
Gosh, now in order to determine the size of Narnia, I'm going to have to do trigonometry. Yep. Yeah, you have to. <laughs> uh, You've got angles now. <laughs> i got angles. I don't and know don't forget to for fac- factor in the different prevailing wind directions at the different times of year. Oof. Yes. Which, side note, I don't know that those would exist on a disc world. Well. I need to go talk to a sailing expert. You should. <laughs> What's Amanda doing these days? <laughs> sailing <laughs> she's on a tall ship somewhere uh-huh still yeah that's a thing she's okay. still doing the thing cool uh yeah as far as stuff i actually wanted to really talk about theme wise i think i've covered all my things Kristen, do you have anything that we uh well haven't um, gotten into i'll fill in the blanks here but um steven do you have anything else i have a few things on my notes here that we may or may not get to one of them i had that kind of popped into my mind that was kind of a fun picture is what happened to the ship I, you guys have referenced that a few times what happened to the crew and the ship that brought the seven lords out to this point um and i rereading through this in the last couple of days i did see the reference that the lords had to buy a galmian ship and man it with hired galmian sailors Mm-hmm. I believe I'm pronouncing that right. Um, and so that kind of thought was interesting to me. Like they didn't even necessarily have good sailing knowledge at that point. They had to go somewhere else to get people to to take them. So that might indicate, that might answer the question of like, why didn't the sailors try to help the lords at these various different locations? And it's because they're just hired. They don't care. <laughs> like they're just, okay, on to the next, you know. Yeah. Um, but then the thought occurred to me that what happened to that ship and those people? What if that ship and those people were the pirates at the very beginning of the book that like came back around and tried to attack them three Whoa. years Whoa. later? Because they, they were done and they didn't have anywhere to go. So they figured out, oh, we'll just stay out here and be pirates. Hmm. And I don't think it's actually true because I went and looked it up then afterwards. And they they don't... I don't remember how they referenced that pirate ship, but they say by its look it was Telmarine or something like that. It was some other type of of boat, but it was an interesting thought. Like, what if that that boat and crew then circled back, now lordless, and uh, became pirates? That is an interesting point because uh, when they get to Asmandu's, I'm Ramandu. saying Ramandu. I, I I said his name wrong before. Yeah, you did. Uh, okay. When they get to Ramandu's island like they don't encounter any other ship there like they have the last three lords that just decided to abandon their journey and sit down at the table and and sleep forever but yeah there there aren't any other crew or ship there so we can probably imply that the ship left them there the the ship left them there but also at some point it's either it's either Karaikan or Ramandu who's just like oh yeah that ship full of lords came by and it was like beat up worse than your ship was and it was like almost completely wrecked that's what cry can say i think and so at that point like the ship was barely holding together and so maybe they just barely made it to ramondu's island and the three lords are all that survived and the ship sank but i don't know fair point maybe the the sailors turned around it's possible it's Mm. also possible that they and did they also get a really hyper accurate map of all the places that they had seen thereby making it more likely that they became pirates because they were the best most knowledgeable people 
in the area. Uh, I don't know about I don't know about that because it says that this was the most accurate map. Yeah. When when Kraiken made it. Well, because the pirates map was only slightly less accurate. It's like this was like a. (laughs) Well, like Kraiken also doesn't say anything about helping them with their ship either. He's just like, yep, their ship was broken up pretty bad. Yeah, but that was a bummer. They were still able to make it to the next island, like two islands from there, though. Yeah. So. Do we think the duffers were invisible at that point? It's a solid question. Like we maybe we know that relatively recently they turned into the monopods. Yeah, like, and I can imagine they, they would not have had a young girl on board. In which case, probably not. If they had been invisible at that point, did the duffers, the duffers like kill half attack. of them because they didn't have anything else to do? <laughs> so maybe one of those ship people got back. And it was his father that had shared to the kid on the Lone Island mm-hmm. the stories that they heard. Maybe. So maybe some of them did get back, and they are some of the old salts that are on the Lone Island who are talking to them being like, yeah, these headless men, they're so dumb. And yeah, the the fire and so. It's a good theory. A bunch of, bunch of regular pit and creams that didn't want to go to the edge of the world. Yep. Absolutely. <laughs> I don't understand that name. Like, that name is just, <laughs> it's a bridge too far with that name. <laughs> I think that a lot of, I think C.S. Lewis is, is definitely the one fictional fictional character name giver <laughs> that's, that's a, I, that I struggle with the most. Because I feel like, when you read like the hobbit you're like oh this is bilbo baggins and this is you know gandalf like these sound like names that came from different languages as opposed to like with lewis where it's like this is reap it cheap well you're also talking about this is pit and cream like and this is rhine elf it's like it to me, Lewis feels like he, he repeated a word over and over and over in his head until he got dissonance that it didn't sound like the word anymore and was just like, all right, so water bottle, water bottle, water bottle, water bottle, water bottle. Okay, so we have a town called Wadabada. And they go to Wadabada. Like, I think you're confusing with George Lucas here. <laughs> yes. Um, but also, too. again, to my point earlier, if this was a book that he just wrote for some kids, then some of those names do do make a little bit more sense like one of the one of the books that's floating around my house right now is captain underpants and in there there are some ridiculous names that are just there you know to make you smile when you read them that's like that's the only reason that that ridiculous name is there and so i wonder if sometimes some of these names like you're saying they're just there to make a kid smile when it reads it i don't know yeah eustace clarence scrub and he almost deserved it yes but also like you you mentioned tolkien as being like oh you can accept these names but this is also the guy who's like yes and the dwarfs were named oin and gloin and doin and bifer and bofer like <laughs> yes Valid point. Like, also true <laughs> also true uh-huh like he really phoned those ones in <laughs> yeah so That's to true. his credit though he created a lot of names so <laughs> kelly and philly and uh, yeah uh-huh. he, he would have to phone some in occasionally just for sheer exhaustion mm-hmm. 
Cool. You had you had other points to get to, Stephen. Yes, sure. Why not? <laughs> um, another thing that I found a little a little insight here that I thought you might find interesting is that apparently Tumnus created all of this. To go back to your your point that Tumnus was the secret ruler of all of this, mm-hmm. and I got that from a Wikipedia article that was talking about how. Um, C.S. Lewis apparently said that he had for years in his mind the picture of a fawn with parcels in a snowy wood and that that eventually led to this story that is Narnia. Thereby giving credence to your theory that Tumnus is behind all of this. It's true. Yep. You did it. I know. I was like that. (laughs) Yeah, that's a I don't know it, it's i want to say there's something there because there's a there's a lot of influence from like other mythologies and whatnot that come into play and like there's uh some stuff from norse mythology and a lot of stuff from like the greeks and uh things like that and the like especially like uh what's his face bacchus like bacchus comes in and like there's other gods that show up and like this, this idea of of the fawn is very much like, you know, Pan or somebody like that. And I feel like maybe Lewis almost started from a place of maybe not wanting to do Christian allegory. Maybe he wanted to tell a story about Greek mythology to kids because he was like really into history and antiquity and the classics. And so maybe it only became a Christian thing later and it started as like, oh, hey, I see this fawn. Why don't I, why don't I talk about Pan? Why don't I talk about Bacchus? Why don't I approach these things in a way that, you know, kids can engage with? Yes, Tumnus is. He was the originator. He's behind it all. Yeah. <laughs> it's all Tumnus. Uh-huh. On a side note, I think the sea serpent was the dumbest animal ever. <laughs> <laughs> Like if you think about an animal, an animal of that size has to eat a lot to survive Mm -hmm. unless it's like a magical creature. Right. And second side note, the picture of a sea serpent, like coming up out of the water, up and down, up and down has always struck me as odd. Like that is not an efficient way to swim. (laughs) It's very inefficient. So, I don't understand how this animal has survived this long if it wraps itself around a ship and then squeezes it is sailing so fast that it catches it's swimming so fast that it catches up to them they can't sail faster than it it wraps around it squeezes it loses it and then just moves on with its life like how are you going to survive if that's how you treat your food I don't understand <laughs> Maybe its normal food source is much dumber than the crew of the uh, of the Dawn Treader. But what other f- what food source? Like what what is out there that it can eat enough of to survive being that large of an animal? Whales, uh, giant sea people, sea people, giant Cities. giant Nardian manatees. Uh, <laughs> like none of know. those things it could find while going up and down at the surface up <laughs> through the air. Though I don't I don't get it. See now, now who's nitpicking the books? <laughs> I fully admit that yes, 
I am nitpicking. Yes. <laughs> you have brought right. this out of me. You invited me <laughs> on here. So this is what I have become. This is the influence we have on our guests on the show. All right. Uh, cool. Was there anything else we wanted to address? I don't know if you want to go into it, but I did watch the movie, which was interesting. An interesting exercise that can open up a lot of conversation in and of itself. I saw it when it came out in theaters originally, but Chris has not seen it yet. Yeah, I I kind of wanted to watch it before doing the wrap up just because like I was curious because this is the one that did poorly enough at the box office that they were just like, no, we're not making the other two. So, well, I I would like to give you more information on that because I did do some research on that. Okay. In order to kind of look at this, you have to see like... You have to look at the timeline here because you have some of the major movie studios. You have Warner Brothers coming out with the Harry Potter movies and releasing this series of children's fictional films. Mm -hmm. And then you have, who did Lord of the Rings? What studio? Studio, I'm not sure. Okay, well, you have the studio that did Lord of the Rings coming out with Lord of the Rings here. And so Disney had managed to get the rights to do these Disney to adaptations of Narnia because they're like, all right, so in the fictional worlds, like we've got to compete with Harry Potter and the Lord of the Rings right now. So let's do another fictional world that has captured the hearts and imaginations of Americans for years. And let's put out the Narnia movies. Because it's this seven book series and we can do the movies. But the biggest issue with these is that the first one did great in theaters. The Lion, the Witch, and the Wardrobe. But then we had Prince Caspian come out. And Prince Caspian, because it doesn't... It follows the Pevensey characters immediately into it. But doesn't follow Narnia as a... Like it doesn't follow Narnia. It has a disconnect for the audience... And also, like, some of the changes that they made, they released in the middle of the summer. Like, they had a lot of issues with the release on that. And Prince Caspian just didn't do well. And so they just went, no, we're not making any more after Prince Caspian. Mm -hmm. Period. That's what they And so Fox came in and eventually did The Voyage of the Dawn Treader. So it was a different studio entirely that did Voyage of the Dawn Treader. Okay. And we have Voyage of the Dawn Treader, which is set up as a story in the book in this episodic manner where it's meant more for, like, a show as opposed to a movie. It's not set up to be a good movie. There isn't a main character, like we've said. There isn't an antagonist, like we've said. It's bad for fictional storytelling in a film format because Mm -hmm. it doesn't have this. And it also doesn't have two of the main characters. And... The, the two main characters who did continue, Lucy and, and Edmund, the actors aren't good in that movie. <laughs> like, the, the actor who plays Eustace, wonderful, perfect. Everything about it was perfect. However, like, the guy who played Edmund retired from acting after that movie. He de- hasn't acted since. Like, that was his last film. It's like retiring at 17. Yeah, it's like it was done. just like, done. Like, nope, I'm not going to keep acting because this is not my thing and everyone has told me over and over again it's not my thing Mm -hmm. so they're just the changes in the studio the changes in the actors like personalities and ability to perform 
all of these different things. Like it, it's, it, it was, it, it was already almost dead before it. And Fox came in and was like, nah, we're going to make it. Don't worry guys, we got this. And it's then dropped the ball on it as far as like actually presenting something because the content was not designed to be a movie. So there, there you go. I watched a YouTube video about it. Oh, <laughs> somebody did the research. Yes, I did. Cool. Well, but, go funny. ahead, Stephen. <laughs> what was funny is when I started watching it, I literally got partway into it and went, "Nope, I, I'm not finishing this because hmm. it is so different from the book that I literally finished reading, you know, two hours before or whatever." And I'm like, "I'm not even gonna." bother finishing this this is just so different and whatever i'm not gonna but my wife was like well now i kind of want to know what happened (laughs) (laughs) so we ended up finishing it and it was so drastically different like i know it's it's very common that you know a book will have differences when it comes to the movie abdact i can't even speak yes those words um but this really was so so dramatically different. Well, I said it a couple of times, so it counts. Okay. Uh-huh. I actually started taking notes like near the end, just because it was so different in in a comical way. Mm-hmm. How's um, was Prince Caspian? We did watch that one before our review episode. Well, and they the, did change a lot of plot for that. The things that they changed were trying to make the characters actually like because there isn't any character conflict. And they were trying to add in character conflict in the movie. Mm-hmm. So they made they made some changes that didn't make sense, but they made changes to the characters, like of Peter, that actually did make a lot of sense for the story. Yeah. To actually be a good story. Yeah. We'll have to get around to doing Don Treader at some point. Yep. Here I wanna I wanna read you my notes just so you can you can react to this, okay? <laughs> Ready. Okay. After collecting six magical swords, Eustace the dragon, with no band on his arm, battles a sea serpent in the dim, not too dark to be able to see island, as the boss level for this adventure. While Edmund uses a flashlight, he left in Narnia three years ago but still has working batteries. Eustace then gets a seventh magical sword stuck into him, and Aslan virtually cuts him open from a distance without touching him. All the while, Edmund's sword starts glowing blue, but is not sting, and he stabs the serpent in the mouth while telling the white witch that she is dead thereby rescuing many rowboats full of people that have been sent as sacrifices into the green mist by the slavers on the Lone Island. A short while later, they all reach the sandy end of the world, and a small boat then magically appears for Ipachip with no explanation, who jumps on and rides over the wave while Aslant, who has a particular set of skills, voiced by Liam Neeson, roars (laughs) a tunnel into the wave, and the kids swim back up into the room while their aunt calls them downstairs to visit with Jill Pohl. Uh, <laughs> why are there magical swords? <laughs> I forgot about the swords. This is just a thing they invented. Did I mention okay. it was dramatically different? Now I want to watch it. Just wow. <laughs> that was fantastic. Yeah, that seems like not even the same uh not even the same book there. It has some <laughs> of the same named characters, if that helps. Hmm? But otherwise... Are the, are the Duffelpuds in it? The Duffelpuds are in it. 
Okay. Well, as long as they made it, then uh, but, not all is lost. But on that island, the mansion is also invisible. Oh. And she walks not upstairs, but on the same floor as the main entrance across a very hard, echoey floor. And like even that part, I was like, it's supposed to be quiet carpet. Like, what, <laughs> what is this? You're supposed to not be able to hear the footsteps. Interesting. So, so it seems like in the in the film, Eustace is in dragon form for much longer. Is that yes? And I wanted to mention that because uh, Kristen mentioned before how she remembered previously that he had been in dragon form longer than. Mm-hmm actually turns out in the book being like one chapter's length and i wonder if that doesn't come back to your memory of the movie because in the in the movie he is a dragon for much longer it might be it's probably from the movie Mm -hmm. it's probably from the movie you're just conflating these two things well and i mean it makes sense for them to do that in the movie because in the book as soon as he's undragoned he's not a character anymore uh-huh. Like, he just stops existing in the book. Like, I was going to bring up his journal and be like, the most interesting part of this was when he got to write in his journal and then stopped writing. Like, and then just stopped being a dragon and stopped being a character and just, bye, Eustace. I'm glad you're here. Mm-hmm. So I would have liked him to stay a dragon longer so he could have had more character role in the film, or the, not film, but the book. Yeah. Could have been nice. Well, we should watch that and do another episode eventually. All right. Maybe you could record like a Mystery Science Theater version where that, you guys that, are reacting live as you watch it. That is something we actually talked about. Uh, do it for the Patreon on yeah, all of the yeah. movies. Like that's that's an idea we brought up at some point. And I think I think the hard sell in that is like we'd have to watch the movie at least twice to, and convincing Kristen to do that's going to be hard. <laughs> it was to... legitimately hard for me to watch, and I was surprised by that. Um, yeah, I didn't I didn't think that it would be, but when I went into it, I was thinking I was trying to decide if I had seen this one before because I couldn't remember anything about it. But then as soon as it started, you know, we weren't very far into it at all. And I'm like, this, I just can't. I can't. I don't know what, I just can't. So I literally actually just turned it off. And I I probably would not have finished it had it not been for my wife. So it was interesting to see. I was not expecting to have that kind of reaction to it. I'm so curious now. Uh, any final thoughts, Stephen, on the book? No, no, nothing specific. Uh, I enjoyed reading through it. Um, I agree that uh, he could have written it better, um, but I don't hold that against him. Um, and I'm not going to throw my copy out for any particular reason. So, and I enjoyed, I enjoyed going through this with you guys. Do you remember this being our father's favorite book in the series? I do not. Um, I am not surprised by you saying that. Um, I don't have a particular memory either way on that. Mm. When I think about reading books uh, and I think about our father, I tend to think about Lord of the Rings. Mm. And part of that is because I do have a photo 
I don't know where it is right now. I couldn't put my hands on it if I tried, but I, I picture in my mind a photo of me and him sitting next to each other reading, and we're reading Lord of the Rings. So I don't know if that particular photo has you know influenced my memory of books as a child. Um, but yeah, I don't I don't necessarily have any memories tied specifically to him with Chronicles of Narnia. Okay, gotcha. Um, he had one book missing from that set that we had as kids growing up. He had one missing book, and I was able to find it recently in a used bookstore and replace it. So that set is whole again. Just in case you were wondering about the condition of the books we grew up with, <laughs> that that set is whole. I was. Thank you. <laughs> that explains the sudden calm that came over me recently. There you go. Yep. Yep. Everything was made right in time and space and Narnia. Brought balance to the force. Yep. Uh, do like I have a time for me to. voices called out and then went <laughs> silent. So, something that I used to do every chapter um, in the first couple of books, but then that got old, uh, mainly according to Kristen. So, I have relegated. <laughs> I've relegated to just doing it uh in the book review episodes is that i will give a book a review and i will uh go through it and just judge it on how well it set out what it tried to do usually on a one to five star system we always use something different for the star ratings Kristen, what are we rating this book out of this time we are rating this book out of circles of hell It suddenly got very dark. Yeah, wow. I wasn't expecting us to go there. Cool. Um, is more circles good then? Should I just, if it's good, should I just do one circle of hell? I don't know how this works now. You you can judge that as you please. How okay. about fish on the Barbie? Ooh, fish on fish <laughs> on the lamb's Barbie. Serves the Barbie the lamb. Yeah, that that works. Let, let's let's do that. Oh sure, fine, whatever. It's cool. Yeah. Don't worry about it. You know what you've got? I'm not to, I'm not one of the hosts here. You've gotten to pick many of these, Kristen. <laughs> Uh, so magical swords. Yeah. All that being said, I like adventure stories. I like island hopping stories a bit when they're done well. Uh, I, as far as the conflict goes, I enjoy the whole man versus nature thing, which I I feel like is the core of the conflict in this book because there isn't really an antagonist. And stories like, you know, Robinson Crusoe, where it's like you know about survival and about like adaptability and 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 these sorts of themes which i think at times we do well here my main critique of don treader is that it feels very uh it feels very disjointed and by its nature as an island hopping story it kind of has to because like there isn't going to be a single narrative because we have to go to this planet and and this planet and this planet as we did in like one of the last star wars films because (laughs) And, and every every planet or every island has its own little special thing and its own backstory, and this, the, the plot gets very kind of jagged when you do that. However, I think, for the most part, characters are done pretty well. Like, the Eustace Redemption story is done uh, super, super well in this. Uh, as much of a one-note character as I think Reaper Cheap is, I, I do think he's pretty good too and he does have an interesting little character arc he does uh 
Caspian is able to come more into his own as a king. And like, if I had to like throw a dart at a wall and say, oh, this is the main character of this book, it's probably Caspian because he has a lot of moments here that are important for him, whether it be on the slave island or like overcoming greed or finding the lords and like avenging his father kind of sort of. And, you know, at the end he gets married. And so like Caspian has a lot of important life moments here. And so, you know, as a fun side story or as a sequel to Prince Caspian, which I almost feel like this is, uh, I think it's fun. I think it's a cool little adventure. I think we explore a lot more of the world. It leaves me with more questions than answers because I want to know a lot more about these things that get presented that we'll never get back to because I know we won't. Um, but I had fun reading it. And I would probably say, uh, hmm. I'd say a, a solid three and a half fish on the Barbie out of five. There you go. Like, wasn't bad. Wasn't as, was it my favorite book in the series so far? No, but mm-hmm. was also by far not my least favorite. So, okay. It's good. Fair. Good middle of the road. Stephen, would you like to read the book out of a uh, fish on the Barbie? <laughs> I think I'm in the same sort of place. I'd give it three and a half, maybe 3.75. Um, before, you know, diving deep into it in detail, I probably would have given it four out of five. Um, but yeah, I'm similar kind of place. Okay. Cool. I know you don't do this, Kristen, but do you have a, uh, you have something you want to give it? I mean, I give it an albatross leading us out of the darkness. <laughs> Obviously. Was, that's, that's high praise. That's, yeah, but was it an albatross that was first across? It was definitely first across and then an airplane. Uh-huh. <laughs> um, I, need so, some, I need some baseless speculation, though. What's, what's coming next? <laughs> what's coming next? Oh, gosh. I don't, I don't know if I have the, the time to go into all that. Um, I, I, did, I have done a little bit of baseless speculation about the silver chair and how I think maybe it's about uh, thrift shopping and, you know, upcycling and somebody finds a silver painted chair in a thrift store and, like, this becomes like the new throne of Narnia possibly. Uh, it's like, this is the first, you know, we've established that we can bring objects into Narnia from earth because admin yeah. brings a flashlight and stuff like that. So like things can definitely travel that way. So whoever Jill pole is, maybe she brings a chair with her, uh, for whatever reason, maybe she's reading and sitting in a chair and like Aslan's aim goes off and like the, the, the whole, whole, the whole, whole setup comes there. through. Uh, I don't know. Uh, Chris. What, what is what is Tumnus doing with this silver chair? I don't know. I, I <laughs> I'd have to have some information about what timeline we're looking at here. It's like what what era of Narnia are we in? Because like we could go back in time. Like who knows? Who knows? So I'll I'll have more once I read the first chapter for sure. But yeah, it's hard to do much with the title. I I purposefully don't read the back of the book on the in the book summary because that's gone wrong yes, before. It has gone very wrong. <laughs> Because those are just chock full of spoilers. Oh, speaking of which, we should probably read the back of your book on on the this episode, because we normally do. Because mm-hmm. your books are full of spoilers on their covers. Uh, I believe we've already done that, actually. Oh, okay. So. That's interesting. Yeah, I'm looking at the back of this one in my hand. It's yeah, It is interesting to think about what they put on the back of the cover versus what's actually in the book. Yeah. This one says, Narnia, where a dragon awakes. Where stars walk the earth, where anything can happen. 
And it goes on to say some more things, but when does a dragon awake? I mean, a dragon does awake in this book several times, but that doesn't seem like a, like, I don't know, the thing to lead with. (laughs) Yeah, does not seem like the thing to lead with. For sure. All All right. right. Well, I'm short on time. So thank you so much for joining us today, Stephen. Thank you for giving us some of your time to come and discuss uh, the book with us. And uh, do you have anything, personal projects, or just things you really like in the world that you'd like to plug? Hmm. No. No? I don't like anything in this world. Not Dogecoin? (laughs) (laughs) Shiba Inu coin? Uh, no. no, no, I don't have no. anything to plug. Thanks All for right. springing that on me. In, <laughs> so I was completely unprepared for that question. Uh-huh. That's how we get the most honest response. Though. Yes. <laughs> Here's something I actually like. Uh-huh. All righty. So thank you so much for joining us today. We apologize for the audio issues. And if you are interested in giving us your thoughts, questions, feedback, opinions on the seven deadly sins, or perhaps this book as a representation of the seven virtues instead. You can do that at Chronically Podcast on Facebook and Instagram, at Chronically Pod on Twitter, or you can email us your thoughts or perhaps your fan art of Eustace the Dragon with Magic Swords at Chronically podcast at gmail.com and until next time always stay on the boat and if somebody turns you into a dragon maybe consider staying that way it might make you more interesting (laughs) thanks bye see ya oh i forgot about the patreon it's okay. I no, always I forget about the Patreon. You know, I have to do that every episode. It's fine. Patreon.com <laughs> slash chronically podcast. Uh-huh. Narnian manatees, uh, <laughs> like, which again, in my mind, deserves a little bit more of a backstory. Like, did he invest in the wrong cryptocurrency, or what was it? <laughs> and picturing swinging a terrier around by the tail seems no, like more effort. <laughs> You know what that I mean? Like me it, sad. it seems yes. like a way more effort than swinging a baby possum around by the tail. <laughs> Not that I know from experience or anything. But. <laughs> <laughs> the name of the other one I can't remember in Paradise Lost. Paradiso. Where they're going, where they're going through heaven. Paradiso. Yes, that one. <laughs> Yeah, you'd never see a lamb throwing a barbecue in, you know, The <laughs> Hobbit. That's just not yeah. You would. Yeah. I'm going to look that up and make sure I'm not referencing <laughs> the wrong thing. That's why we don't do this live. Gosh, now in order to determine the size of Narnia, I'm going to have to do trade knowledge.
country. Yep. Now you have to. <laughs> uh, You've got angles now. <laughs> I got angles. I don't know if I'm ready for that. If you search the PDF for the word C, you come back with over 100 results. There's a few of those. <laughs> One could hope. But what if you search for the word starboard? Starboard, the word as in the right side of the ship, comes up 13 times. Really? That much? Okay. And in a nice feng shui moment, the word port also returns 13 results. Wow. Yeah. They are balanced. 